This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional help. If you or someone you know is facing difficulties, I advise you consult a psychologist. Welcome to Episode 8 of Psych for Life with Dr Amanda Ferguson. I'm your host, Dr Amanda Ferguson, and it's my pleasure to welcome Lorraine Korn, psychologist, to this podcast, and we'll be discussing a trifle of troubles, stress, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you, Amanda. Great to be with you. Lorraine, you have so much experience and have contributed so much to our profession. You were the National Chair of the Australian Psychological Society's College of Counselling Psychologists for many years, Chair also of the College in the New South Wales section. You were a founding member and former co-chair of the Society's Child, Adolescent and Family Interest Group in New South Wales. Yes, that, that's all correct. And um, I've just uh, finished um, the uh, co-chair of the EMDR, Design Movement Desensitisation Response Group, um, and that is all about uh, trauma and complex trauma. So um, I have just recently passed that on to somebody else. So I've really enjoyed all that uh, involvement in all the associations. How wonderful. I'm fascinated by EMDR. Let's talk about that in a little bit. Um, I believe you were born in South Wales. So when did you come to Australia? I came to Australia when I was very young. Um, and that's why I say I was born in South Wales and now live in New South Wales. Um, <laughs> New South Wales looks nothing like South Wales, I must say. <laughs> and, um, and I... Um, I was very interested growing up in cinema and um, the glamorous world of, of um, entertainment. You say your father owned a chain of cinemas in the Blue Mountains. Yes, and he was also mayor up there and um, he was a very proactive entrepreneur. He was, uh, my grandfather actually bought the chain and sent my father out to run them. Um, and, um, and then he kept doing that. Of course, television came to Australia and that put paid to 2,000-seater theatres because people didn't want to come out in the cold anymore. And as you know, the Blue Mountains is quite cold. Yes. <laughs> but uh, at the time, you know, it was very, very glamorous and very much fun. We used to have all the bands come up from Sydney and play at the cinema. Everything was fun. How wonderful. And yet you say some of your other surroundings were not like that. Well, I think that within the community, it was a very conservative community and we were so different from the people around us. And so you become a little bit, or I became a little bit conflicted as to how to appear in public that was acceptable and yet have all my champagne bubbles going on inside me. So perhaps I was a little bit over the top, which people found a little bit intimidating at times. But it served me well in my practice because my clients absolutely love that about me. I can imagine. And is that what made you interested in psychology? Yes, this uh, dichotomy in it, I, I could see people struggle 
a lot with how they perceived people in their lives and how they themselves were in their lives and how often people tried to please others and be the person that they thought other people wanted. And that's what I used to do as a child. I used to try and dampen myself down. It's true. Society can cause people a lot of stress, anxiety and concern about conformity, can't it? And that's one of the main areas that I find people struggle with and that is one of the main causes of the symptoms of anxiety, depression and so on in our society today. Very interesting. I agree with you. As well as your nine years as state and national chair for the APS College of Counselling Psychologists, you have a private practice and it used to be both in the eastern suburbs and the Upper North Shore from 1994. That's correct. I I have travelled many miles over the bridge, under the bridge. (laughs) (laughs) I I haven't done the water. (laughs) And I believe for the last five years you have practised solely in the eastern suburbs. That's right, yes. Um, It's nice to um, not to have to travel by car anymore. The traffic is getting worse in Sydney. Uh, I remember once coming back, a truck got stuck in the tunnel and it took me over three hours to get home. So it was one of the (laughs) decisions I made. I think I'd better, you know move on. That is quite a sacrifice in the service of others. You must have impacted so many people's lives across these areas of society. Yes, I get quite chuffed, um, particularly when I moved over here. One of the most interesting experiences I had with one of my clients who was very frightened of the tunnel and the bridge. I, I had to tell her I was moving to the eastern suburbs and her problem was the bridge and the tunnel so one of the sessions we did was I said okay well I'll come in the car with you and we'll drive to my practice over in the eastern suburbs and we'll drive back and as we go we'll see where your anxiety rises and we'll bring it down and from then on she was quite happy to drive over that was the turning point for somebody to be there that actually understood where these peaks of fear came in. Goodness me, what a great service above and beyond the call of duty. But yes, very effective, I'm sure. Yes, I think that one of the things you can do with people is if if you have the time and it makes such a difference to them because from then on they have no trouble driving over. I mean, this is quite a milestone for a lot of women to be able to jump over. They they have a, a real fear. So many women have a fear of driving across bridges and, and under tunnels. Uh, but they only need somebody with them who understands the fear, where it peaks and what to do at that moment and how to understand the way that they are perceiving the environment. I completely agree. And while we're now on that topic... Do you use graded exposure for things like that, for anxiety for the bridge and the tunnel? Not normally. Um, When I uh, work 
in my rooms or Zoom, as we've been doing so much of with COVID, uh, it's a matter of um, understanding a person's coping strategies and how they got to the point where they use certain things over and over again. Eventually, those things don't work anymore. And that's where I come in to see how we can put a different form of coping into their world so that they're not reacting exactly the same way and getting the bad outcomes that they're getting. That's wonderful. My understanding is that those coping mechanisms start off as adaptive and become maladaptive? Yes. um, I would say that they become a habit. I really don't like sometimes using those sorts of words for clients because they believe that there is definitely then something wrong with them. My whole idea is to give them the idea that they only need tweaking, that they only need a little tiny move in their thinking or in their behaviour that will make a big difference to them. So the way I do that is I look a little bit into their past to understand genetically, first of all, what messages they have grown up with from their past. And those messages are very strong. They sit on a person's shoulder subliminally and whenever they go and make a decision, those are the first ones that come to the fore. So if you talk about adaptive and maladaptive, I think it's more like you sit and use your immature responses because they're the ones you are so used to. And then it's a matter of seeing whether they can come up with a whole new set of messages that they would like to give their own children, for instance, if they have them or if they're going to have them. Or, and, and those messages may look a lot different. They may only take a few of their parents' messages, but they may look a lot different and, um, and help them then not use those same things to start with. So for the first approach to be able to change those ones that are so habitual. It sounds so supportive. It would reassure people, I'm sure, already that approach. And then as they're teaching to their children, would that reinforce their learning? It's all about readjusting their responses to difficult situations. We don't want them to change their whole persona. Some people get a bit worried when they come to psychologists that, you know, we're going to take out their brain and clean it out and put it back (laughs) and they're going to be totally different. Um, That's why I talk about tweaking a bit. You know, we're just going to change a little bit so that the whole person becomes so much more integrated and, and happier and content and confident in what they do. So, um, so yes, yeah, so those starting off with those messages, it's, it's a subtle way of them being able to realise, yes, whenever I go out in the car, my first thought is, oh, my God, I have to be careful. And uh, sometimes when you say these things over and over to yourself, you're actually driving the car then with so much stress in your body waiting for something to happen and that then creates an anxiety or a dread that something is going to happen. So if you think of, oh, I'm going to go through a tunnel, it's, oh, my God, the tunnel may fall on me. I might There might be a fire in the tunnel. And so you go in with that thought, so it's very scary. That makes so much sense. So it's our thoughts that are producing a lot of these 
problems? It's the thoughts and our physical reaction to the thinking. You know, in life, you get a thought and a nanosecond later, it turns into a feeling and we act on the feeling. So you may say, oh my gosh, it's just the OMG thing that's all out at the moment that, that, that people uh, have that sudden thought that is very fearful that creates feelings of fear. And when you have feelings of fear, your body stresses, um, you get tight, you're not working in the best possible way to approach whatever it is you're doing. And your action is then to be on high alert, to be uh, nervous, and not to perform at your optimal level. That makes so much sense. Lorraine, in addition to all this amazing work you've been doing, you've also written three books, I believe, on anxiety, relationships and depression. They look wonderful and they're illustrated, no more than 50 pages, and we can learn how to reduce our suffering in any of these areas quite quickly. I believe they're available in hard copy and proudly printed in Australia and available at people's local pharmacies or through your website or as an e-book from the Kindle app. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. I'm all, all fun there. Fantastic. And uh, we'll talk about your website again later, but it's www.lorrainecorne.com.au. I must imagine people comment about your books to you all the time as to how helpful they are. Yes, and uh, I've had, as you say, I've had wonderful feedback. People find my book in the pharmacy and then they ring me to come and see me or they um, are in to see me and I give them a book um, as a reinforcement of what we're doing here. So it can come either way. You can also find the book and actually when you're reading it, it gives you the ability to start to think about your problem outside of yourself instead of being stuck in it. I believe that I, I needed to write these books in order for people to get a totally different handle on mental issues. It is far easier to get some psychoeducation to understand how the brain is making a difference, to understand how your genetics may influence you to understand the way that you perceive other people, the way you may misconstrue other people's intentions, the way the depression stops parts of the brain working efficiently and therefore you're wondering why on earth you are so out of energy, you are so down in the dumps and you're so stuck. When you understand how the brain works, then you know how to give those parts of the brain some TLC so they can get back their ability to keep you back up there and focus and do what you want to do in life. I can see how reassuring that must be for people to see that it's not just them and it's not personal, it's 
in many cases, a biological reaction. Yes, that is a very, very good start for people because once you give people hope, there's light at the end of their tunnel. And I always see that and I always tell people I can see it because I literally can see it, even though they cannot see it. I think it's because of the so many years' experience I've had, it doesn't matter what the issue is, there can be a way to the other side. Some people do have mental illnesses that are very hard to deal with. I'm looking at, say, schizophrenia and that side of the very hard core mental um, health issues. But even there, there are ways that that person can handle their condition in a more uh, in a more profound, more uh, objective way to be able to help themselves when they're feeling well. This must bring so much hope to so many people. It does. It does. It lightens. <laughs> it lightens the load. <laughs> That's what is is so important to do for people: lighten their load, see light at the end of their tunnel, and know the path to follow to get there. Agree, and especially in times where it seems that our loads are getting added to uh, significantly. Lorraine, people often tell me they're stressed when, in fact, I discover after doing a survey that they're more anxious or not even stressed but anxious, and we get these confused a lot, stress and anxiety. Uh, I think you say that stress is a physical or psychological stimulus? Yes. If you think of stress as something that's happening outside yourself, um, this can be, you know, if you if you're in a, a place with a that they've turned the heating up too high, you can get very stressed in your body because the heat is up too high, and if your head does not get cool, you feel a lot of stress in your body. If you're um, up. Uh, in front of people and you get a lot of uh, criticism afterwards, you know, that's stressful because you you are being criticised. Um, anything outside you that, that, that gives you stress then produces psychological strain or your feeling of being discombobulated, you know, a, a bit out of sorts. And there's also a positive aspect of stress, I think. Yes, look, I, I have this funny little thing where I say to people, when you start out in life, your internal locus of stress is very low. You la, 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 la. But as you go through life, our stress levels rise because of all the things that are happening. We've got um, to do the right thing by our parents, our teachers. We've got to get the right education, the right job, we've got to find the right partner. You know, it's all stress, stress, stress in our world. Uh, And you don't want it to be so high that the next thing that happens, you tip over. And that tipping over, you're suddenly, you know, really not coping, you're crying or, you know, you've just taken in too much stress in your body. Um, But you don't want to get rid of it altogether. Because otherwise you're flopping all over the place and not getting up and doing anything. So what you want is an optimum amount of stress. 
so that you can get up and go. And most of us would probably know what our threshold is when we're tipping from positive to negative stress. You know, a lot of people keep going even though they know they're close to cracking. There's a point, and particularly a lot of men do this, they have this cut-off between their head and their body and they don't see what's happening in their body and they just keep going on and on and on and finally they just don't know why they collapse. Um, and it is true that people have a pusher inside them that they have to get this amount of money. You know, they have their goals that they don't want to compromise. And it's a way to help them realize that, A, if you want those goals, then you're going to burn out and not get them if you go the way you're going. Or... Some people have their goals so high and when they reach them, they still put them even higher. So they never reach them and that causes a lot of stress. Do you think this might be one of the reasons why our suicidal rates are so high? Our suicidal rates are very high in men um, and I believe that men have uh, have been told in their lives that they have to be a certain way that they mustn't be weak, they must be seen to be in control and there are men that are just not very good at that but they still try and keep up this facade and if people around them don't know how to ask the right questions in the very important times, they don't let on that they're finding it harder and harder to cope. And when they tip, they really tip because they don't see any other avenue but to get rid of themselves so that they have no more pain. And this is a very, very sad thing in Australia because there are lots of parts of Australia that are very isolated. And there are many parts of Australia that are very pressured. So we have... um, a tyranny of distance and a barrenness of spirit. Well put. And yes, exceptionally sad. I see a lot of pressure on men, perhaps in my demographic of my practice, where they're trying to keep up with the Joneses or their wives' expectations and pressures. It's very sad to see that they don't speak out often and people don't know how to help them. That's quite true. Um, people are very non about how to manage their partner's pain or stress. In the relationship book, if I may point to that, I talk a lot about how to help the other person when they're under difficult circumstances. And a lot of um, problems in relationships are due to people thinking that the other person wants a solution to the problem. And what you don't want is a person solutionising. It actually makes the other person shut down more. So there's a lot of interpersonal relationships that could improve just by more understanding of how that dynamic works. And how can we help people to open up to us? Well, the best way for Uh, partnerships 
to do it. And I'm talking about either um, male and female or LBGTIQ, you know, whatever mixture of partnership you have. It's about sitting down with the person and and asking questions and checking out things that people don't hear each other very well. They, They want to pop in and put their little bit of what they know about it rather than allow the other person to hear that they're heard. You know, all the way through our lives, we really find it wonderful to know somebody's really hearing us. That's why you and I are on the planet, because we actually hear people and we understand and we reflect back to them. And that helps the person feel better in themselves, that they're understood. Now, it doesn't matter if you actually disagree with the person's point of view. The main purpose of that hearing is just to hear. You could always have conversations later about whether you can compromise on certain things or point out that uh, this is not the best way to do it. But if a person is under a lot of stress, you don't get anywhere by trying to find compromise too early or to solutionize too early. You need to hear the person. And the very easy way to do that, which I've got in my anxiety book, is called active listening. If somebody says to you, I had an awful day at work, you don't say to somebody, oh, yes, you always have an awful day at work. Can't you come home feeling a bit happier? <laughs> it's, better to say, it's better to say to them, are you saying you had an awful day at work, sweetheart? And then they feel, oh, she heard me, he heard me, whoever it is at the time. And then instead of launching into anything else, you wait. And then the person says, yes, the boss was at me again or... I lost a lot of money on the stock market today or whatever it is. You don't go and have a meltdown at that point. You say, oh, you're saying you really lost a lot of money today. So gradually, gradually, you actually allow them to get off their chest what it was that's making them so anxious and stressed at that moment. So just being able to release the information, the the tension, being validated for and being heard by somebody who cares about them, that that would make them feel cared for and supported and I guess that it's real what they're going through. Yes, and uh, many people have stopped doing this because I find a lot of competition between partners. It gets lost in the way people want to be acknowledged by the other one and you find that there's a lot of desperate needs to be acknowledged and I think that's why many people break up. They don't feel that they have enough acknowledgement and respect from the other but unfortunately people don't know quite how to give it and that's one of the main reasons I I wrote the books. I want people to know the very essence of how to do this without feeling you're compromising yourself. It's such a simple thing we can do in relationships and if if we could just slow down, I guess, and come back to these basics, 
so many more relationships would be healthier, wouldn't they? Yes, and I don't believe you would have so many suicides. Exactly. So, so stress is an external thing. I guess anxiety is more of an internal thing, isn't it? Anxiety is it's the body's reaction to to a danger. So your amygdala in your brain, amygdala is Greek for arm and it's a little tiny round thing in the limbic system and that creates the adrenaline through the body. So when you've got uh, something like you're standing on a cliff and your adrenaline's going because you're, oh my God, I'm a bit frightened, it's when you get that fear. But if people have bad experiences when they're younger, and some people come into me with the most horrific experiences of being children and terrible things happening to them, or even something like being frightened by a dog when you're very young or some sort of animal. Later on, whenever that animal is around or whether or whenever you're in a, a situation where you might feel apprehensive, that little almond remembers that old memory and puts you into a state of tension and of apprehension so that you feel that there's imminent danger even though there may not be real danger. So people who end up highly anxious and then they can get a panic attack because they've tightened everything up so much for so long it affects their breathing and they get the sweats and they... And the first panic attack they ever have is always the worst one. And then after that, you very much fear you're going to get another one because you never want to be like that. Your worst fear is that you make a fool of yourself or you pass out, you make wet your pants, you know, all these sorts of fears that people have. But actually that first one is always the worst and very, very rarely do you get another one the same. But your fear of it, like your fear of the dog, like your fear of the big man or whatever it is that you've had that early experience will be in the amygdala, in that little almond, and boom, it comes out and scares the bejesus out of you again. So anxiety is very much caused by prior experiences that stay with you as a memory and will bring up all those physiological feelings when you are in the same situation in the here and now. And as you say, often the anxiety is out of proportion, like being in the tunnel and fearing it will fall on us, whereas anxiety can, of course, be positive and necessary. Yes, well, it definitely needs to be there to alert us to imminent danger. I mean, you know, if you're in the jungle or if you actually, I remember being in the... Um, that they call those ghost houses that they used to show, you know, where you're walking around, suddenly the floor changes and then somebody oh. comes out with a with a with a torch light under their face. <laughs> the haunted, haunted houses. <laughs> the haunted house. That's the one. Well you put me in a haunted house, I have the biggest anxiety <laughs> attack on the planet. <laughs> 
I can feel my heart pounding and clutching all the children and they're saying, what's wrong, Mum? I'm scared out of my wits. <laughs> and, and you talk about twisted thinking causing anxiety and that the word should is often part of twisted thinking. Oh, yes, absolutely. This should and, and has to words are very much uh, um, ways that you try and do what you think you need to be doing. So your, your thinking is, I should be able to control this. And the feeling that you get is more panic because you know you can't control it. So this should increase the amount of adrenaline in your body. And what we want to do is decrease that. What we want to do is bring in the part of the brain called the hippocampus, which is Greek for seahorse. On the front of my anxiety book, I say it's the struggle between the irrational and the rational brain, between the almond and the seahorse. Because the seahorse is the one that holds the present memories, that keeps you in the present and that can keep you into your rational and mature perception of a situation. So when you go into the tunnel, instead of having this sense that the tunnel is closing in and it's coming down on you, which your almond will be doing with your perception, your seahorse will be looking at it and saying, it's very strong, it's been built. And as a matter of fact, your seahorse wouldn't even be bothered commenting on the tunnel. It would be more likely saying, going to the tunnel to get to um, the best dress shop or the the best um, market in Sydney on the other side. So your your seahorse keeps your perception in the present. It's fantastic. We need to look after our seahorse much better. Just <laughs> <laughs> be aware more. Be aware more. Yes. 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 How, how do our genetics impact our anxiety and other moods? Mm. Well, many people come in with stories of, uh, of them having alcoholic parents or, um, or parents who tended to go out and abandon them, you know, or, or just parents that responded to situations in a highly anxious and stressed way. So the way your parents respond show you a route of response. If you have a mother who worries about anything and everything, be careful, be careful, be careful, something bad's going to happen, then naturally you take that strong message into the world. If you've been in the womb, and they're doing lots of um, very interesting research now to show that in the womb, this comes across the placenta if the mother is a highly anxious person the child will have uh, elevated levels in their bodies when they're born of adrenaline. So that adrenaline and, crosses uh, the placenta. Yes, um, I hope I'm going. I haven't read it for a while, but it does affect the child. So the child can be more anxious in life as to start off with. That's why. When mothers are pregnant, they often say, you know, play soothing music <laughs> to your baby in the womb 
do um, yoga, do exercise that that brings down the um, impact of the almond so that you don't get yourself into many stressful situations. Now, it's not going to impact the baby if occasionally you have a, a stressful situation, but we're talking about mothers who can be worried continuously about everything. And there are people who are chronic worriers. You know, there's a difference between acute and chronic. Acute are when just things come into your mind and it starts to worry and then you can't sleep for a night. But the chronic worriers are the ones that everything's doom and gloom, everything's going to be a disaster. And you know people who talk like that. You know, they're, they're actually difficult to be around because they're so downing of your own spirits. You can't, <laughs> you can't be happy around those people. And for so the, if those people are ca- carrying so, babies, I think it would uh, really affect the baby in the end. So for those people, you talked earlier about tweaking. Would tweaking be sufficient to help them not to have that impact on their baby and for them to feel better? Absolutely. Now, what they've also discovered is the brain is very plastic. You know, we talk about neuroplasticity. So when people come into therapy and they want to deal with these sorts of things, as they're training themselves to do something different, you actually change the neurons. They make different pathways. So if you are a big warrior, What's interesting is that the pathways don't always have to run to the almond. The pathways can now be running more to the seahorse. And this makes a tremendous difference for people. People come back to me and and, and they've had this wonderful sense of calm when they've actually experienced being in the situation where they used to have a big anxiety attack or an anxious reaction or a very highly stressful reaction to the situation and they suddenly bring in their seahorse and suddenly all the things that they were frightened of sort of turn to like um, melted uh, ice cubes and uh, they feel so good in the way that they are in that situation now. They feel so in control and so back to whom they are, they're grounded and make such a difference to when you look at somebody who is having a, a, a panic attack in that moment or just a simple stress attack, that how the brain does not work well when the uh, amygdala is and the little almond is going off half cocked. Um, it really does make them much more mature, they appear much more mature and the, the way that they're coming across is is more in control. So people actually have a different way of reacting to them. So this is another positive thing that happens in their surroundings that people are not treating them in the same way. They're actually uh, lifting that person up in, in their respect. What wonderful results and so easy, as you say, for people to feel so much better and function so much better. 
And I believe you use several modalities, cognitive behavioural therapy, emotionally focused therapy and EMDR, as you mentioned earlier. Could you tell us more about the EMDR? It sounds fascinating. Uh, yes, well, EMDR was, um, it has been around for the last 25 years, but has now recently been um, approved um, through the, uh, the APRA as a modality to use in, in, in Medicare. Um, it, um, it has been researched very effectively for trauma victims, and uh, it can be used for the complex trauma as well as the simple trauma. Many people have something in their lives that is a sticking point. They can't get over a particular thing that was said to them years ago, like that they were not worth the parents' accolade, the report that they produced, which was 99%, a parent said to them, where's the other 1%? Certain things, like those are simple things that stay in people's lives, that they grow up to have a self-image of being a failure or being worthless. Now, when these things are there and they are preventing that person to move forward and have their wonderful epiphanies like I was talking about before, you need to use something that actually channels out of the nervous system that reaction. And EMDR does that beautifully. How does it do this? It does it. Uh, if you think of your nervous system uh, where you would have uh, something going around and around it, that it's just sitting there going around and around the nervous system all the time. Like if you took your hand and you ran your finger around the outside of your hand, round and round and round, and that's what those thoughts are like when they get stuck. That the next thing that happens and you, you think, um, you know, where I used to think this of myself. You see, I had to work on myself a lot. So I know from experience what I did. So I came from a, a family that wanted people to be excellent. But you know, where is excellent? Yes. <laughs> have trouble finding it. So it didn't matter what I did, I never thought that I made it. And a typical example of this was in the old days, we used to have lovely motherhood quests and I got in the top 10 and I was on television, but that wasn't enough for me. I didn't win. So so you can see that how that would fit in my, I'm a failure. I didn't come first because this is often the cause of a lot of people's upset with themselves because their, their benchmark is somewhere in the universe that you never quite reach. Yes. With EMDR, that channels that through by um, by a type of therapy that is non-talking therapy, if you just go through and, and, and work out where these strong messages first came from and then what either through eye movement or through tapping or through bilateral stimulation, you can neutralize 
the effect of that situation. So that later, later on, as you go through, you don't feel that response anymore. And you can start to build again on whom you really are and have different expectations of yourself. It sounds wonderful and very non-invasive, non-threatening. Absolutely. Absolutely. People are amazed how effective it is. You can't use it all the time and you can't use it. I don't think in certain instances you can use it straight away, like if somebody's just had a terrible trauma and they've seen people die or they use it in those situations straight away. But in no, in a normal therapeutic situation, it would take a little bit of time to get to where the stuckness is. Yes. And uh, and you need uh, to, to put in place some uh, things. And I'm talking about not many sessions. I'm talking about, you know, in six sessions, you can go from being really stuck to feeling really good. Wow. That's amazing. And when you were talking earlier about traumatic events like in childhood, a dog threatening a child, I guess that would be post-traumatic stress disorder or could turn into or could produce post-traumatic stress disorder. And then complex post-traumatic stress disorder, what's that more about? Well, that's when you have a series of things. It's not only one trauma. It's a whole list of traumas that have built up. And it also is causing other mental health issues. So um, so when it's complex, it means, you know, that, it, it, that people have um, depression with it or they have um, some other mental health issues that actually mean that you have to peel things back, like peeling back the onion skin to find out, well, exactly which are the ones that are the most traumatic starting from that. Because, you know, you can have somebody that's been raped as a child by a sibling and then on top of that they've had a car accident and on top of that they've been belted by their partner and on top of that, they can be abandoned by their children. So that's a complex post-traumatic stress disorder. You know, that they had one enormous traumatic event after the other. And can that really be healed? Um, well, I believe that you can help the person disengage from parts of their life where they were not in control of it. People sometimes, particularly women, beat themselves up about, I should have known. This is a very, very interesting part of women's thinking particularly that they voice to me. I should have known that. And I'm saying you, 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 you should know before you know. Women <laughs> seem to assume that, they, that they're supposed to know everything. I don't know what we're given as children, but we're supposed to know <laughs> the answers to everything before we actually have experienced it. So women tend to get very upset with themselves. They say, I've got in, it was my fault that I got into that situation. Well, 
did you know about this? Did you know how to get out? Have you experienced it before? How are you supposed to know this? And it's a relief to know that they it's okay not to have known. And because they didn't know, that's naturally what happened. So we were sort of, in a way, externalising the experience. So it's not stuck inside your chest for forevermore. We can put it out there and re-look at it. Do you think that a lot of people's distress in the pandemic is because they already had some of this underlying PTSD, complex PTSD, anxiety, depression, stress? That's a very interesting question. I get a bit upset with the press for beating this up because I've had two entirely different experiences with clients about COVID and about the lockdown. I thought that the people who had OCD, this sort of thing, would probably be much worse. Actually, they have been much better. And I think it's because their life has simplified. Yes. Um, People have told me that um, they're not so anxious. They loved COVID because they didn't have to organise social arrangements. They didn't have to organise things for their children. They, They just became a family and they worked together. The father wasn't out at the office from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., They were all together, and it was a relief. So, you know, there are two different types of thinking with this. I think that people who have got very stressful partnerships and um, and there's, you know, a lot of dysfunctional behaviour, then COVID may highlight all that. Um, But... My the reports I've been getting is exactly the opposite. That people have been relieved by it, um, and I cannot speak for people who are in poverty and lost their uh, their jobs. And so I've got to be very careful that I don't speak for everybody. I can only speak from my own experience. That's so true. There's so much distress out there. Um, And speaking of that distress, a lot of depression as well, which I guess is the feelings of sadness, the opposite feelings to stress and anxiety, where we're much more withdrawn, much more uh, low in our mood. Yes, that's right. And uh, it's again, you know, you've got these parts of the brain that are very um, responsible for the effect of depression. Um, if you look at the uh, the brain with the prefrontal cortex, this is a very important part that has your executive functions working so you can concentrate, organise, judge, reason, make decisions, etc. Um, when you're depressed, your little almond, you know what we're saying about it doesn't make you more stressed, but when it runs out of adrenaline, the prefrontal cortex doesn't have as much help in keeping you focused and therefore it doesn't get switched on properly. So you, you can't do all the things that you want to do. And along with that, you've got this wonderful corpus 
a lobe which is Latin for tough body. And this is the largest pathway in the brain that connects the right brain to the left brain. And that's vital for physical coordination and complex problem solving. So when you're depressed, you can't even work out in your mind how to get out of the depression. You don't call it, it's like a pathway being dug up. You feel stuck, defeated and give up. So what we need to do with depression is to work out ways to put to start the um, middle arm in producing some adrenaline again. And we've got to look after ourselves to get there because when you finally are depressed, it's because you have actually given up a lot of the stuff that you used to enjoy because you just couldn't fit it in or it's just too hard to try and do it or you've just got too much on your plate. So... Depression is one of those things that, um, that, that there, you know, there's many causes for it. I mean, you might lose your job. Um, you might just have disaster thinking and thinking of yourself as not being good enough all the time. Well, that will make anybody depressed. So in the end, you really have to face what the issue is and grab it with both hands, wrestle with it until it's a go away. And that way you can get on top of it. So the thinking and the ability to move that, um, that sense of self into a better place is what has to be tackled. And if they come in in the way that they're passing the problem to the therapist and saying, you fix me, then I say, look, sorry, we're both in this together. <laughs> Yes. I can't do all the fixing. You've got to help. Exactly. I'm happy to do half of it. <laughs> I guess in an in an ideal situation when people really can't undertake homework or even therapy, then an antidepressant can give the support required for the person to do the work on themselves. Yes, that's right. That it depends with how how deep the hole is. Yes, and sometimes people feel that their hole is actually too deep. And yet as a therapist, sometimes I can see that it's not as deep as they think it is. And the important part of therapy is to give people um, a better perspective of where they are on the spectrum. So that they people come in and say, I'm so depressed, but actually I think they're, they're sad. But I don't know whether they're actually depressed and I don't like the word very much. I'd rather call it the blues. That's what I call my little book, the little book of tools for the blues because the blues sound something that we can do something about. Depression sounds like I'm stuck in this deep hole and I can't get out of it. So I like to reframe the whole idea around mental health so that it's, everything is doable. I find with cognitive behavioural therapy, people often get results in that first attempt at the therapy and they're so surprised when the percentage of how depressed they felt drops remarkably. Yes, absolutely. I'm very pleased you can see that and uh, it does help. And then we build on that with other therapies so that it's sustained. It's a sustaining that we need to do a lot of. Exactly. People have to manage their own lives and I guess as psychologists we give them strategies to do that. 
Yes, and that's why I believe in homework because I don't like the idea of them going away and I'm like a serial on TV. A week later, you come and look at me again. I think that it's important for the communication to continue through the week in some small way. Like you go home, do some homework, text me if it's not working. We can talk about it before your next session to get you back on track so that they don't lose the momentum. I agree. Years ago, I used to just give homework and then I discovered that very rarely people would follow through. So these days I try to work, as you do, between sessions on the homework with people. Yes, yes, that's good to hear. It is a shame because we know it works so well that, as you say, people tend to look to us for the treatment, whereas they can be doing so much for themselves for free. (laughs) That's why I wrote my books. My husband tells me, why did you write those books? Now people don't need you. (laughs) (laughs) It's my altruistic streak that did it. Yes, and I think most psychologists have that, which is why we go into the profession, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, that's right. Sharing and caring. Yep, it's quite what we do. Yes. (laughs) It's quite a calling, isn't it? Yes, very much so. You know, learning how to manage confrontation and criticism is something that's very important, which I talk in my books, particularly with anxiety, because people don't know how to manage that, and that's when they become highly anxious and can't think clearly. Um, Another aspect is to be learning not to mind read what others think of you, because many people think that they know what how other people think of them. And um, Queen Victoria said, it's not what others think of you, it's what you think of others. And a lot of the problem with um, feeling worthless and a failure is because in each situation you think that's what people are thinking of you and then you act accordingly. That's so true. I hear that as well so, so many times. And I ask them, what do they think of themselves? Helping people with self-esteem and self-confidence is important, isn't it, for anxiety, stress and depression? Yes, I think that they need, again, a little tweak, that they need to look out and look at the person and in their mind's eye, say to themselves what the person is wearing and what their colour eyes are what shoes they have on and what tie they've got or whatever it is they're looking at so that you stop looking out and looking back on yourself and mind reading what you think they're thinking. If you concentrate on how the other person looks, you will prevent yourself from going straight to that spot. Oh, they don't think I'm good enough. You need something to cut it. What a good tip. Yes, that's in my anxiety book as well. And it's, uh, it's really people, one of the first things I actually talk to people about, it's their first homework. They need to go out and look at as many people as possible to see how they look so they get used to doing that. And then by the time they get home, they don't have to use that, I wonder what they're thinking of me. 
Very good. So what would be the three main tips for these areas of mental health that you would offer people? Get rid of all the shoulds and have to in your mind because you can't know before you know. So it's fine to look at everything as a new learning experience, not as a failure. Okay, that's number one. Number two, think about how high your expectations are. Do you have the blue goose syndrome where it's just so high you can never reach it? Re-evaluate your expectations so they become much more practical. And thirdly, if you're very much into social media at the moment, you're going to fall into this what other people think of you and whether you are keeping up. If you want to stay anxious, stressed and depressed, just keep doing that. But if you don't want to, then only use your social media for putting your stuff up, but don't look at others. Very good tips. Thank you very much, Lorraine. Lorraine, one of the things I'd love to discuss with you is seasonal affective disorder. Right, yes. Um, I was actually interviewed on the living room some years ago about this. And it's interesting because it's, it's more often found in the Northern Hemisphere because people lack a certain, can't remember what it is now, but in their eyes that actually um, when they take in light and the, they, they, they produce the vitamin D that keeps the mood, it's one of the parts of the um, mood lifters. So um, it's known out here as winter blues or summer sadness because it can happen any time the season changes. Some people still feel their mood change with the change of season anywhere. But it's particularly in the winter when you don't have enough light, when you have these grey skies that people feel down. Um, and when you find out you have got a problem with your um, absorption of vitamin D in your body, they suggest that you get a light box that you put next to you at breakfast time and it's like a light box that produces a similar thing to sunlight and this helps boost the vitamin D so that when you go out, you, you, your mood is not going to dissolve as soon as you get under those grey skies. That's why they call it sad, stressed, anxious and depressed. But it's actually seasonal affective disorder. Oh, yes. <laughs> I believe that we have, at the moment, around 14% of Australians suffer anxiety. Yes, yes. It's, it's too high. Um, and I don't think we're... Um, teaching the next generation resilience because we've been in this wonderful, wealthy society for a long time. We've, you know, for 30 odd years, the people who've been born into our society only find things stressful when things don't live up to their expectations. And anxiety is very much produced in a wealthy society by 
too high expectations. If we go back to, if I may have time, just to go back to Seneca, the philosopher who um, tutored Nero, the Roman emperor that sort of set fire to Roman fiddles while it burned. Seneca couldn't understand why the wealthy Romans were so miserable. And he worked out it's because they all had too high expectations and they were never fulfilled by the people around them. Interesting. And we call ourselves the lucky country, so our expectations, of course, are so high. (laughs) Absolutely. So how can you ever meet them? That's where, you know, we have to at some point come back to the present, to what we have, not what we don't have, what we can do and not what we can't do, and whom we are and not what we particularly want to be like somebody else. When we can come back to that, we can build on then what we've got and not trip ourselves up by wanting something that we can't have. Very good advice. I'd like to thank counselling psychologist Lorraine Korn so much for your generous time and wonderful information in helping people through this podcast. You can find Lorraine Korn's books in any pharmacy and on her website. You can reach Lorraine Korn at her website for counselling sessions, for media inquiries, and that website is www.lorrainecorne, L-O-R-R-A-I-N-E-C-O-R-N-E.com.au. Thank you so much for your wonderful time today, Lorraine. Thank you, Amanda. If you think you or someone you care about is suffering from anxiety, stress, depression, post-traumatic stress or complex post-traumatic stress, Seek the help of a psychologist either through your GP or by going to the Australian Psychological Society's website, find a psychologist. If you or someone you know is suicidal, call Lifeline immediately on 13 11 14, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Please note any references to people, stories or scenarios mentioned in this podcast are purely theoretical and are not real people or events and are used to give context only. The opinions expressed by guests in these podcasts aren't necessarily shared by me. To find out more about me, please visit my website, dramandaferguson.com.au. You can find the link in my show notes.